I'm the doctor, by the way. You're listening to Pieces of Eight, the Doctor Who podcast that's loved by eight Doctor Freaks. And I mean that in a very good way, of course. We're on the trail, as ever, of those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of the Time Lord, as played by my mate, Paul McGann. I'm Kenny Smith. And I'm Paul McGann. No, I'm not. I'm Matt Michael, unfortunately. <laughs> you join us as we resume our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's exploits, whether on screen, in books, novellas, full cast audio, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, magazines, doomsday entries, um, <laughs> hyperdrive download mind psychic paper things and more and we've definitely got an episode today that constitutes as more 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 how do you like it how do you like it when i'm not singing probably anyway yes today we're taking an exclusive <laughs> look episode. oh we could Anyway, talking about singing, no, we'll come back to that later. We'll come back to singing very shortly, but I'll talk about what I did at the weekend. <laughs> We're taking an exclusive look at the Lost Eighth Doctor novel Freaks, which was planned for release in June 2000, but ultimately never saw the light of day. Now, before we talk about it, Matt, I suppose I should explain my singing reference there as to what, what I was talking about singing at the weekend, because I was asked to sing some Gilbert and Sullivan by a popular British actor on Saturday. Jim Broadbent? No, it wasn't Jim Broadbent. Somebody a bit more relevant to this podcast. Oh, oh, that's... Was it... um, Robert Dick? No, it wasn't, because much as uh, our good friend Robert was there, no, it wasn't him. I was asked to sing a little... Yeah, go on. Was it Paul McGann? It was Paul McGann. He asked me to sing. So, <laughs> yes, he did. Because I had the fun of uh, travelling down to Derby to Hooverville. And I had to interview Paul live on stage in front of an audience of at least a couple of hundred people. And that was fun. That Amazing. Was gr- um, as great the kids fun. say, well gel. <laughs> well, they were certainly well and laughing a lot so that's always a good sign but yes i was asked to do that back in may by andrew mark thompson because uh, as a listener of this podcast uh, who's andy of course has just got his book out this is a fake published by telos publishing or telos if you wish to be um to the cybermen about it and yeah they asked me to come down and interview paul on stage given my knowledge of him and his career so i did and my goodness what a laugh had a great time and of course somebody's been very naughty and uploaded it to youtube the whole panel apart oh. from like the first minute and a half so uh yeah it's somebody's been naughty oh, and uploaded. Won't be rushing to watch that immediately after we finish recording definitely not definitely not but uh yeah so we're talking about singing and um mentioned gilbert and sullivan so i sang a little bit of hms pinifer in my wonderful baritone that's not wonderful it's my baritone and it's very limited so did you say I shall send you to heaven before I send you to hell. <laughs> I did think about saying that song the McGann's did, but I thought, no, that might be quite <laughs> cheeky, just in case he uh, sort of got up and walked off. So I thought, no, I'd better not do that. But um, yes, I would uh, had a great time, had a good hour, a good laugh with him. And then afterwards, got to chat in the green room and we're chatting about our families in yeah. World War II, what they did. And also I discovered that Paul's dad 
lived up in Scotland. He was based in Ayr for a while, played football for the army up here. And also, Paul himself is a quarter Scottish on his father's side. So, there we go. Ah. And you're, okay. you're effectively Scottish, given that you lived up here for a while, so... I did live in Falkirk. I think that definitely counts. It's like proper Scotland. It's not yeah, Tories. <laughs> Get to Falkirk, as they used to say, absolutely. So, that's wonderful 90s comedy. So, there we go. So, yes, Paul McGann, and uh, you can find that on YouTube. Obviously, it's completely legal, and I'm not recommending that you go and watch it, but it does exist, I'm just saying, for those who are interested. Everyone should go and watch it. Yeah, we get to chat a little bit about books are in there, comics, audios, TV. We find out his thoughts on the new costume and how it came about, how he came yeah. to be in The Power of a Doctor. So some new anecdotes that were there, things that I hadn't heard. So yeah, I hope that everybody doesn't go and watch it, I should say. Yes, don't watch it because it's illegal. Don't watch it. <clears throat> anyway. Let's move back to the subject of today. Matt, freaks, and I'm not talking about Eighth Doctor fans or indeed any fans. Do you remember, this one was one that was sort of announced back in the day and then I think we'd probably all collectively forgotten about it for so long. Yeah, I, I had no memory of it at all. I must I must have seen it in iHu too because I, I've read all of those books cover to cover many years ago, but it's it's completely passed me by if i'm honest um pro probably because the the one that i've always been more aware of is is sort of lawrence miles is big cancelled dalek thing mainly because lawrence used to talk about it at length at the tavern every time um he had a few drinks but but no this one was super exciting when you when you reminded me it existed yeah, and I was completely surprised when uh, I was chatting to Bex Levine and she said that it was there because like, you had totally forgotten about it until I was flicking through iHoo 2 to do some research for Series 7 and then there it was in the section about the Banco legacy where it noted the work proceeded to mildew in a desk drawer until 2000, referring to the Banco legacy, when former editor Rebecca Levine had to withdraw, citing scheduling conflicts from writing an eighth Doctor novel called Freaks. And thanks to our podcast pal, James Hadwin-Bennett, who we'll be hearing from very soon, he kindly pointed me in the direction of DWM's 286, 287 and 288, which briefly tells the story of the novel, and how it came to be and then how not to be. So in Gallifrey Guardian, in issue 286, cover dated December 1999, it says, New Range editor Justin Richards promises a startling new direction for the Eighth Doctor books, beginning in the as-yet unconfirmed July and August releases. This follows immediately on from June's Freaks, a satirical xenophobia-themed tale from former Virgin New Adventures editor Rebecca Levine. Yeah, and the following month, Gallifrey Guardian reported Freaks by Rebecca Levine, previously announced for publication in May, has now been indefinitely postponed. No news yet on its replacement. And then... In issue 288, we're told, following June's gothic whodunit The Banquo Legacy, a replacement for the cancelled Freaks, co-written by New Adventures writer Andy Lane and Justin Richards himself, former editor Stephen Cole, in association with Peter Angelides, pens the super secret The Ancestor Cell, a novel which it's believed will tie up all the loose ends outstanding from the arc which commenced with last summer's interference. Uh, and there was not a single full stop in that sentence. Thanks, DWM. And that was the last. <laughs> that was the last we ever heard of it. 
Yeah, thank goodness they've invented the full stop since you started writing for DDM. In fact, did you invent the full stop, Matt? I think I did, but I don't like to brag about it. Oh, that's good. I once told my daughter Katie when she was about three that I'd invented the letter K just for her name. And then she went to school and told her nursery teacher about it, and I get called over afterwards to congratulate me on my invention. (laughs) (laughs) I once told a colleague, a a rather naive colleague at work, that coffee had been invented in, no, been discovered in 1910 by Maxwell House. (laughs) He was knighted as Sir Maxwell House in recognition. (laughs) I also told her that if you parked a car downhill um, and put it in reverse, it, it was at risk of rolling uphill. <laughs> Did you also tell them that the That's word gullible has been removed from the dictionary? Yes. <laughs> um, oh dear. But, I love it. but th- that, those three mentions, I think, in DWM were the last we, we ever heard of Freaks. Yep. Until now. Yeah, I just had to know more about it after being reminded about Freaks, so I got in touch with Bex Levine to see if she still had a copy of any material to do with it and to my surprise and indeed hers and of course delight she still had the full prologue and the synopsis so let's find out a little bit more about freaks from the range editor steve cole hi i'm steve cole i was the editor of the bbc doctor who books in the late 1990s of course this was originally going to be the slot where rebecca levine's book freaks was going to go before it ultimately dropped out and I think that was one that Justin had, I think you must have been sort of like in advance, you do that, but as you say, you were working on the Ancestor cell. Ah, so is that why the Bank for Legacy came along? Yeah. I remember that, uh, yeah, I was hoping that Bex would write one for me before I left. I'd forgotten that that had uh, fallen through at late stages because she had <laughs> probably far more exciting work to do um, than the Doctor Who novel at that point. But. Uh, Yes, that does. Oh gosh, that brings it back to me now. I wiped that from my memory. Oh, and I've only just met up with Bex again. I could have, I could have said, "Why, Bex? Why? <laughs> why did you do that to me?" <laughs> oh well, I'll have to uh, get in touch with her again and now say to her, "Why, Bex? Why?" <laughs> She'll wonder what the hell's going on, but you know, no change there. Yep, you did say it was a little bit more because that was rather short and sweet. So yeah, thank you, Steve. And it's actually interesting. This one was actually not overseen by Steve, but his successor, Justin Richards, given the need for speed, as Steve and Peter were writing The Ancestor Cell at the same time. Mm. So let's now hear from the author, Bex Levine. It's another short chat, and uh, we'll hear what Bex recalls about it. And I can tell you, it's not much. Hi, I'm Rebecca Levine, former editor of The New and Missing Adventures. I'm also a professional writer these days and still an editor and I was going to write a book for the BBC but other work came in and I had to I had to withdraw from it which was a shame. Yeah I imagine that doing your own book must have been something that was quite exciting so how far didn't the line did you get with it? I mean I was already I think already writing books professionally tying books I had a quite detailed plot I think I'd written the first few chapters maybe that was about as far as it got uh, I think that was with Justin Richards when he was still the editor, I think. Yeah, it was sort of exciting. I mean, to be honest, in the immediate aftermath or the near aftermath of working on the books, it was a bit of a busman's holiday doing more Doctor Who. Now I think it would be a lot more exciting. 
but but at the time I was in the same way that I I don't know if you're aware but I'm I'm the narrative director on Zombies Run which is a running app so just my heart sinks at the thought of ever writing any other zombies because that's what I spend all day doing so it was somewhat similar with Doctor Who having said which I was pleased with the story I came up with it was about the Doctor being in prison I think uh, escaping from prison but that is as much as I can remember about it there we go another exclusive quick chat so let's hear all about the book now we're going to start off with the background document that Bex wrote for this book which is going to be read for us today by James Adwin Bennett Doctor Who Freaks by Rebecca Levine Background To be revealed gradually during course of book Several millennia ago, the Sib were involved in a brutal war of attrition with the Ull, a war that threatened to wipe out both species. The Sib had always been a warlike race, fighting each other before they found outside enemies, and they'd also found a way to impose a peace on themselves. By deliberately dividing their knowledge up between the different tribes, Sibs, they'd ensured their codependency. It became an absolute law among the Sib that Sibs must only marry outside themselves, sex having always been the alternative to battle. A Sib visionary realised that the same principle could be applied to their enemies, if only a way could be found for them to become cross-fertile. But by the time she had developed the genetically engineered virus which could bring about this change, barely any survivors were left of either race. She and her ship's crew were able to find just one regiment of the Ull who had agreed to participate in the experiment to unite the two races. It worked, but not all the Sib were happy to change themselves in this way, and her ship was critically damaged near a barren and distant world. She and some of the united Sib and Ull were able to take escape pods down to the planet, but the Sib who held the knowledge of shipbuilding died in the crash, and the Sib-Ull Union were stranded on the planet for good, while the ship drifted off to the outskirts of the solar system, lost from sight and eventually memory. On board, the species crossing virus remained in storage, its secret lost to the people of world. Away from world, the war continued, reaching its inevitable conclusion in the mutual annihilation of the two races. Fast forward to the end of the third millennium of human history, when the Earth Empire, deeply xenophobic and hierarchical, rules the known galaxy. Several decades before the start of the story, the Empress has just ascended the throne, determined to maintain the status quo. But her tearaway brother, Rajkumar, has other ideas. Dangerously liberal and a trained xenologist, his latest research is on the recently discovered planet World. He's been living among the native peoples and has discovered far more about them than the Empress realises. He's become particularly interested in the legend of their lost ship and the genetic miracle it carries. But Rajkumar is recalled to court before he can pursue his interest further. The Empress, fearing her brother's subversiveness, has hatched a plan to control him. She's putting him in charge of the Empire's prison service. 
Over the years, Rajkumar appears to become a faithful imperial vassal, and everyone believes he's forgotten his youthful folly. But he hasn't. And when the chance comes to open a high-security prison for the Empire's most dangerous alien criminals, he chooses to build it on World. Once there, he's finally able, in secret, to track down the lost ship. Needing it close at hand, but knowing his sister will put a stop to his researches if she knows of them, he brings the ship to the planet and disguises it as one of the new casinos which have sprung up around his prison, the Freak House in Circle City. However, Rajkumar is no geneticist, and his researches aren't getting very far, until Tarn and his gang are admitted to the prison. Tarn is a draconian freedom fighter, imprisoned for developing an airborne and deadly virus genetically targeted at humanity. Rajkumar tells Tarn of his dream, a twisted version of his youthful idealism. Over the course of his time as warder to the worst that alien society has to offer, Rajkumar has come to believe that alienness itself is a disease which, if only it could be cured, would end all injustice in the galaxy. He's able to persuade Tarn that draconian people will never achieve equality with humanity, except by becoming human. Tarn's fellow prisoners are disgusted by his treachery, although Rajkumar forbids him to explain the true nature of his work. Tarn agrees, on condition that the draconians are accorded special protection within the Freak House. Tarn begins work on the Sibs virus, combining it with elements of his own, almost completed virus. His aim is to produce an airborne virus to work on the reproductive organs of all races. The individuals infected will remain unchanged, but they'll only ever bear human children. Within a generation, alienness will have been eliminated from the galaxy. The virus is only in its early stages of development when he realises that his own former lover is pregnant with his children. Wanting his progeny to be the first to benefit from his miracle cure for alienness, he secretly infects his lover with the virus. Unfortunately, it's still not perfected, and while one of the children is born human, the other is draconian. His lover knows nothing of this, she's sedated during the birth, as are all subsequent experimental subjects. Rajkumar agrees to adopt the human child. The draconian twin is taken outside the prison and given to a draconian family resident in Circle City. The Sibs virus is enormously advanced, beyond the capabilities of third millennium science to produce. But Tarn is a genius, and at Rajkumar's bidding is able to use his expertise in genetic engineering to manipulate the virus, making it airborne as Tarn's own intended viral plague would have been, and subtly change its function. The virus is already targeted at reproduction and at introducing an alien genome to a being's reproductive cells. All Tarn is doing is ensuring that it's always the human genome which is introduced. He has expertise in the human genome too, having been designing a virus which would target it. The human child, Isaac, grows up to be a prison guard and loyal son to Rajkumar, until the imperfect virus begins to malfunction within him. Meanwhile, the draconian child Lal himself grows up to be a renowned campaigner for draconian rights. They know nothing of each other's existence, or the remarkable secret of their birth. 
Over the years, Tarn works to perfect his virus, and various pregnant inmates are contaminated with it. The children born are sent out for secret adoption into Circle City, closely monitored by Rajkumar to ensure that the genetic changes hold. But for years, the virus remains flawed, so that the children are never entirely human. Their organs, or bones, or skin remain slightly wrong. While the experiments continue, Rajkumar also works to build his power base in the Empire, recruiting such a large following that he becomes a threat to the Empress herself, although he always remains ostensibly loyal to his sister. Inevitably, rumours that something strange is afoot on world reach the Empress. But her brother has become too powerful to confront directly. Instead, she sends her android servant, Joffiel, to investigate, the only creature sophisticated enough to pass through World's incredibly tight security net. Even so, Joffiel is forced to land on World's far side and make his way on foot to Circle City. Joffiel is filled with incredibly advanced analysis equipment, all hidden inside him underneath his apparently human and sensor-proof skin. On World, Joffael soon finds out about the adopted children. He begins to track them down. The first one he finds, nearly an adult by now, is obviously not entirely human, but doesn't correspond to any known alien race. Joffael needs to find out what's going on, so kills and dissects the teenager, even eating some of his organs to survey their genetic and molecular structure using the equipment inside his body. From this, he learns that the boy is mostly human, but his DNA is also partly draconian. One by one, he tracks down the other children and finds that each of them is part human, part some other species, but a different one each time. Meanwhile, the Empress plans a state visit to World to confront her brother in person, while Joffael continues his investigations. It's as he kills his last and most important victim, that the book begins. And now we've set the scene, let's hear a synopsis of the book, which is being read for us by a number of our podcast friends who are doing a chapter each. Doctor Who Freaks by Rebecca Levine Prologue Compassion lands and the Doctor and Fitz emerge to find themselves under the shadow of a huge, heavily defended wall. It's night. And while the lights of a fast city blaze around them, the building gives nothing away. As the doctor realizes that it's a prison, they see a figure creep from a doorway in the wall side, carrying a bundle in its arms. A newborn baby. Puzzled, the doctor and company move closer, until a figure suddenly emerges from the shadows, snatches the baby and runs away. They set off in pursuit, goaded by the baby's screams. But when they find it, it's already dead horribly mutilated, and the killer is long gone. Chapter 1 
On the planet World, Circle City is abuzz with excitement. The notorious serial killer, Flash Jack, has finally been caught. Or rather, he's given himself up and signed a full confession to all his crimes. Strapped, Hannibal Lecter-like, into a restraining device outside Circle City's courthouse, Fitz is wondering if he should really have talked the doctor into letting him do this. According to his signed confession, he's guilty of the brutal murder and mutilation of 193 human children, some only a few days old. And all because the doctor wanted to know why someone had been smuggling a child out of the freak house, the highest security prison in the Earth Empire, to which its most dangerous and hated alien criminals are sent. And the freak house is just where Fitz is going, when the court physicians determine that, despite all outward appearances, there's something not quite human about him. It's this hidden alienness, which also afflicts the doctor and compassion, that led him to this desperate measure. They had already tried to enter the prison as guards, but had been rejected by the security checks as not fully human. Outside the freak house, the doctor wonders if he's done the right thing, but the baby they saw came from inside the prison and he's sure a clue to the murderer's motive lies inside. He feels he should be the one inside, not Fitz, but Fitz convinced him that he's more used to dealing with lowlifes than the doctor and that the doctor has a much better chance of breaking him out of prison than he does the doctor. What's more, with the official investigation closed, the doctor plans to find the killer himself while working to free Fitz once he's had time to gather as much information as possible. Meanwhile, Joe Fayel has realized that his final infant victim is fully human, but still smeared in the blood of its mother. And Joe Fayel discovers that that blood is fully alien. For the first time, he guesses what's going on. Joe Fayel needs to get a signal to the Empress to forewarn her of what she'll discover. He starts to build a booster for the signal, but compassion is on his trail and catches him before he can send the message. Rajkumar's men have also detected the unauthorized transmission and they are closing in. After destroying his equipment as thoroughly as he can, Jofael has to flee from both and realizes his only option is to head back across the wilderness of world to his camouflaged escape capsule. Sending a hurried message to the doctor, Compassion heads off after him and, once the governor reconstructs the signal Jofael was about to send concerning forbidden genetic experiments, Rajkumar's troops also follow. Rajkumar now believes that Jofael must be an accomplice of the child murderer, and since he alone knows that the children killed were the subjects of his genetic experiments, Rajkumar suspects that these are the Empress's men, and that she must have begun to guess what he's up to. He also realizes that Fitz probably confessed in order to get access to the prison. He determines that Fitz is too dangerous to live. Afraid to leave Fitz without backup, the doctor must let compassion carry out the pursuit on her own while he tries to free Fitz. Chapter 2 Inside, Fitz quickly has to adjust to the brutal institutional regime. He's prepared for the hostility of his fellow prisoners, but not for the summons from the governor. The governor tells Fitz he knows exactly what he was doing, and he's going to see to it that his stay inside the freak house is a short and painful one.
Outside, the doctor is planning an escape, not just for Fitz, but for various other inmates he believes to be wrongfully imprisoned, for political rather than criminal reasons. The doctor is recruiting a ragbag team to help him, some local criminals along with alien freedom fighters. As the doctor goes about his task, we come to see more of Circle City, the huge and corrupt sprawl which has sprung up around the Freak House, initially growing to provide every service required by the governor's fist, the elite fighters who guard the prison. It has since become the Empire's premier pleasure city. It's the only place in the Empire where gambling is legal and, ironically, where aliens and humans can mix on almost equal terms. The Doctor uses the ship as his base of operations, the newest casino in the city, built to resemble a bad B-movie version of an alien spaceship. It appears to be owned by the human magician who puts on nightly performances there, and the Doctor asks this woman, Cat, to help in his escape plan. But, as he works more closely with her, he begins to suspect that the ship hides more secrets than she's telling. And meanwhile, out in the windswept wilderness which covers the rest of the planet, Compassion is on the trail of the real killer. Compassion's managed to plant a tracking device on Jophael, always ahead of her and drawing further away. The planet's surface is too rough for ground transport, and the absolute interdiction on unauthorized air travel above world leaves her no choice but to use her legs. It's going to be a long, hard slog. Chapter 3 Along the way, Compassion picks up a companion in the form of Shaul. Shaul is a native of World, a winged, solitary creature with little understanding of human ways. The Empire's classified the indigenous life on World as pre-industrial, no threat to humanity, and too untamable to be much use either. For years, they've been left to wander the planet's surface. Shaul tells Compassion that he wants what she wants, and beyond that, he won't explain. Untrusting, but unwilling to turn down any help, Compassion agrees to travel with him as her guide. Compassion soon realizes that there's more to Shaul and World than this. Soon after she leaves Circle City, she picks up some pursuers of her own, a troop of the Governor's Fist, led by the ruthlessly devoted Marl. They believe her to be an accomplice of the Jophael's. At first, with Shaul's expert aid, she's able to evade the Fist, but their persistence eventually drives her to follow Shaul in seeking refuge beneath World's surface. It's there that she meets one of the Sibs for the first time, an entirely different race of alien, with whom Shaul's kind appear to enjoy a symbiotic relationship. The Sibs are weak, wingless, but enormously technologically advanced. Yet there appear to be huge and inexplicable gaps in their knowledge. Before Compassion can investigate further, Shaul takes her out of the Sib's home and onward in her quest for the killer. But she doesn't leave before discovering one important fact. Shaul, too, is after Flashjack. She transmits a summary of everything she's learnt to the Doctor. Elsewhere, the killer marches on. Christened Flashjack on World, he knows himself as Jophael, foremost of the Golem, the synthetic men in the service of the Empress. He's making his way back to the escape pod, which will carry him back to his mistress. And he's carrying information which she'll find very interesting, and which could mean a death sentence for millions. Chapter 4 Back in the Freak House, Isaac, the governor's son and a new recruit to the Fist, is going through his morning ritual. In the last few months, 
Isaac's morning ritual has come to include filing down the extra teeth he keeps growing and scraping away the scales that have begun to grow on his skin. Isaac knows he can never tell anyone of his affliction. He's a human, and a privileged one at that. This disease might jeopardise his position forever. Isaac's father, Governor Raj Kumar, pulls him aside. There's a new prisoner he wants eliminated. Isaac's shocked. There's no death penalty in the Empire. The governor insists Isaac won't need to kill Fitz himself. No child killer will last long among the other inmates. Isaac's job is simply to give the process a helping hand. Make sure the new prisoner's as unpopular as possible. An uncomfortable Isaac has no choice but to agree. Raj Kumar adds one final rider. No one else is to know of Isaac's mission. Outside the prison, the doctors recruited a new helper, Lal, a draconian rights campaigner who has contacts with many inside the freak house. But, unbeknownst to the doctor, Lal too is suffering from a strange disease. His scales are flaking to reveal patches of smooth, almost human skin, while his teeth are losing their sharp edge. Ashamed of his transformation, he keeps it secret from everyone. The doctors also found out an interesting and puzzling fact. The real, secret owner of the ship Casino is the governor of the Freak House himself. That night, Fitz finds that he's been moved. He's in a cell with two of the prison's most violent inmates. His sharp tongue soon gets him into trouble and Isaac is standing, unmoving, ready to watch him die when another guard intervenes and moves Isaac to another cell occupied by draconium freedom fighters, all of whom ignore him. He beds down for a very uneasy night's sleep. Chapter 5 Outside, the doctor's escape plan is proceeding apace. He now has his full team recruited. Cat, the resident magician at the ship, escape artist supreme, and a woman with a secret. She's easily persuaded to join the team, a breakout from the Freak House will be the greatest feat of escapology ever performed. Sarv, an anarchist ice warrior. Sarv's already leading an organization dedicated to the eradication of the Freak House and all other prisons. So he's easy to persuade, although the presence of Cat in the group nearly puts him off. There's an old row between him and Cat which he's unwilling to speak of. Sarv has spent ten years studying the Freak House and knows everything about it except how to break in. Ty Gaunt, human and the sector's greatest propositional gambler. The doctor suckers him into betting that the break-in can be done and then offers to help him win his bet. Lal, draconian rights campaigner, a pacifist who's been driven by his failure to achieve anything to consider more violent solutions. Out in the wilderness, Compassion and Sha'ul come across a second Sib, but these have been killed and dissected by Joffiel. This Sib specialises in the manufacture of weapons, the only one on the planet. Compassion realises that the Sibs deliberately divide their knowledge between them. Their reliance on each other's knowledge encourages them to trade rather than fight. It's here that Compassion also discovers that she is not the first humanoid visitor to the Sibs. A man called Rajkumar once lived among them for several years, almost as one of their own. 
she passes this information on to the doctor. The doctor himself is preoccupied with planning the escape. The first challenge the doctor's team faces is to bypass the retinal scan that operate at the gates of the prison. The doctor has a solution. Blowing Pepper in the face of one of the guards, he offers his handkerchief to wipe away the tears. From the gathered cells, it's short work to clone eyes for each of them to carry. Chapter 6 Fitz's life doesn't improve the next morning when Isaac deliberately provokes a row between him and some of the freak house's least friendly inmates. Fitz is only saved by his draconian cellmates. Grateful, he asks why they intervened. They explain that he killed 193 humans. As anti-human freedom fighters, it's a total they respect. Fitz is sickened and refuses to rely on the help of people who celebrate the death of children. The governor is disappointed in Isaac's failure to dispose of Fitz and particularly displeased that he's taken up with the draconians. Much as he'd like to, he can't act against them. A favourite prisoner is one of their number, Tan, a renowned scientist imprisoned for attempting to develop a gene-specific virus that would wipe out humanity. Now the governor has him working on a quite different project. Fitz does some snooping around and discovers that Tan's lab is hugely advanced and is the place to which all pregnant inmates are taken to give birth. But he's forced to flee before he can watch an actual birth in progress. Outside the jail, the doctor's escape plan is taking shape. All the fists have chip-linked pets, animals surgically implanted with circuitry that binds them to their human masters. The doctor discovers that the creatures are all voice-commanded. All he needs to do is get hold of a voice print for each of the freak house's guards. Cat thinks she can help them. She announces that the ship is holding a special party to honour the governor's fist. It will last a full day so the guards can come when their shifts end. All attend, and by mingling with them, the doctor's team are able to get the voice prints they need. But, unbeknownst to them, the newest recruit is absent. Isaac is dining with his father, and his voice print is absent from their store. Chapter 7 As compassion and child travel, they grow closer, until he finally reveals his reasons for pursuing Joffiel. He knows that Joffiel is a trusted emissary of the Empress, and Shaul's people have a proposition to put to her. Compassion explains that Joffiel is a murderer. Her mission is to bring him to justice, not negotiate treaties with him. Besides, she can't imagine what Shaul might offer that the Empress would want. Shaul tells her that the offer can only be discussed with the highest authority. He suggests they continue pursuing Joffiel. They can argue about what to do with him when he's found. Reluctantly, Compassion agrees. Inside the freak house, Isaac's disease is growing worse. Unsure what to do, he tries to discuss it with his father, but the governor clearly doesn't want to hear what he has to say. However, once the governor's gone, Tarn takes Isaac aside. Strangely affectionate towards the boy, he tells him that if he knows what's best for him, he'll keep quiet about what's afflicting him. Isaac isn't sure how much longer he can keep it a secret, but Tarn promises to work on a cure. From the shadows, Fitz observes this exchange with interest. Fitz tries to go it alone in the freak house, but he finds himself caught in the intergang warfare inside the prison, asked to choose between two equally unpalatable sides, 
and knowing that picking one will mean the lethal enmity of the other. He manages to charm his way out of the situation, but realises that his luck may soon run out. When he discovers that the Draconians, looked up to by the other prisoners as genuine freedom fighters, are considered to be exempt from the complex system of alliances, he realises he has no choice but to side with them. He approaches Inar, their leader, and is accepted among their number, on condition that he prove himself by killing a prisoner who became an informant to the humans. Fitz tries to go through with it, but at the last minute realises he can't. To his surprise, he finds that Inar accepts him anyway. Her lover, Tarn, was also a pacifist, until he betrayed them and joined with the governor. Fitz again asks how she could love a pacifist and wish for the death of children. Calmly, Inar explains that it's revenge for the deaths of the children of all the prisoners, every one of them killed at birth. Chapter 8 The Doctor's plans for the prison breakout are nearing completion, but he's beginning to feel that there's more to his team than meets the eye. Cleverly arranging for Cat to be on the other side of the city, the Doctor explores the interior of the ship and finds that hidden beneath the fake spaceship is a real and very ancient vessel. Accessing its flight log, he discovers that the ship spent millennia drifting in the solar system's Oort cloud before it was brought to world. He's about to find out more when he's interrupted by Sarv, who asks what he's up to. The Doctor's equally interested to know how Sarv knew the way into this secret section of the ship. Sarv admits that he and Kat are lovers and were always working together on their escape plan but they knew that Sarv would never be able to find alien helpers in his mission if his love of a hated human was common knowledge, so they faked their disagreement. The Doctor also asks why Sarv and Kat really want to break into the Freak House, but on this, Sarv won't be drawn. In the wilderness, Marl's men have lost track of compassion, but instead have picked up Joe Fael's trail. Judging this more important, they follow and surround him. Marl orders Jophael to give himself up. He must be punished for killing innocent human children. Jophael laughs, tells Marl he's very much mistaken, and shows him the seal of ultimate imperial authority before contemptuously slaughtering all Marl's troops. Marl himself is left injured but clinging to life. Meanwhile, Compassion and Shaul have reached his home sip and it's here that he has another surprise in store for compassion. Despite the fact that Shaul and the Sib are clearly different species, compassion's genetic analysis reveals this, they mate with each other. As compassion watches, stunned, a female Sib gives birth to a creature like Jophael. She asks how it's possible, and is told that it's their gift. Chapter 9. Inside the Freak House, Fitz finally manages to observe one of the alien inmates give birth and is stunned to see the offspring as a human child. It's the day of the escape. The doctor manages to get a message to Fitz, telling him he's coming to get him. In Fitz's return message, he tells the doctor of what he's learned. Something terrible is being done to the prisoners here, and everyone must be freed. The doctor agrees with Fitz's assessment, and Fitz has given him the last bit of information into the puzzle. Now he knows exactly what the governor's up to. Starting with Inna, 
Fitz spreads the news of the escape, but the informer he earlier failed to kill gets wind of this and attempts to take a message to the governor. Fitz catches him just before he can do it and is forced to kill him to save himself and his co-conspirators. Outside, the doctor's team prepare for the great escape. As they leave ship, Lal is horrified to realize that his transformation from draconian to human is increasing in pace. The doctor finds him as he desperately tries to hide his deformities. He decides that the only answer to his shame is to kill himself, but the doctor manages to talk him out of it. He persuades Lao that he's needed for the prison escape and that the reason for his transformation and a cure, if that's what he wants, will be found within the freak house. Inside the prison, Isaac wakes feeling very strange, but is distracted when he receives sensory input from his chip-linked pet of a break-in to the freak house. He rushes to inform the governor and can't understand why he's beaten and thrown in with the other prisoners, until he catches a glimpse of himself in a mirror. He is a draconian. Suddenly, Inna catches sight of him and recognizes him as the son she's never seen and believed dead. Horrified, Isaac denies it. Tan enters and tells Isaac it's entirely true. Holding a gun on Tan and Inna, he apologizes to his son. He hoped he'd given him a future as one of the ruling humans, but the cure didn't work. Chapter 10 The Doctor's prison break-in begins, and despite a nail-biting sequence of near misses, it proceeds according to plan, with every team member playing a valuable part. Ty dies heroically in the melee, saving Kat and Sav as he does. Lal too does his bit, despite his complete transformation into a human. In the wilderness, Compassion and Sha'ul have finally caught up with Jophael. They're about to capture him when Mal resurfaces and shoots them down before they can attack. As he dies of the wounds Jophael inflicted, Mal insists he's sworn to do the Empress's will, whatever the cost to himself. Jophael approaches his fallen assailants, but instead of killing them, he takes them captive. He tells them that he knows they were following him all along, and they will provide the final samples he needs to show the Empress. In the Freak House, Isaac begs Tarn to kill him. He doesn't want to live like this. A tearful Tarn is about to comply when Fitz breaks in and prevents it. He can't stop a vengeful Inar from fatally wounding Tarn. As he does, Tarn crawls to his lab and is about to pull the switch which would release his virus on the world when the Doctor enters and halts him. As Tarn dies, the Doctor persuades him that there's a better way. The original virus is the real way to end interspecies war. But Tarn must tell him where it is. Isaac begs Tarn to comply. Only in a world of interspecies breeding can he avoid spending all his life regarded as a freak. In a dying act of grace, Tarn agrees. The Doctor makes to destroy the humanizing version of the virus, only to find that it's gone. And Lal has also disappeared. Horrified, they watch on a monitor as Raj Kumar makes his escape aboard his private shuttle, in possession of the new virus and with Lal as his prisoner. On board the Empress's ship in secret orbit around world, 
Jophael has told the Empress exactly what her brother's been up to. The governor experimented on his own prisoners, and the children born to them were farmed out to human families, except for the firstborn, whom he kept as his own son. Shaul interrupts. He explains that the governor's work is a corruption of the virus's original intention. It was created many millennia ago by the Sib, not to change all races into one, but to make all races fertile with each other. Holding out his hand to the Empress, Shaul tells her that his people have an offer to make. Instead of war, let there be peace between their two peoples. As the first among his people, he's come to offer his hand in marriage to the Empress. Shocked at this slight upon the royal personage, a courtier shoots Shaul dead. Compassion attempts to intervene, but the Empress tells her Shaul was lucky not to suffer more for his insolence. Chapter 11 The doctor insists they must pursue the governor, but the governor has control of all spacefaring vessels on the planet, except ship. The doctor uses this to rendezvous with the shuttle, taking Fitz alone with him. Along the way to creating the governor's airborne virus, Tan creates an airborne version of the Sib virus, and a small sample of this still exists within Tan's lab. The doctor also takes the very small quantity of this which exists with him. The doctor knows that there's a lab inside Compassion which can synthesize a lot more of the virus working from this template, but he needs to get to Compassion to do this. And from Compassion's last desperate signal to him, he knows she's aboard the Empress's space-born palace. The governor arrives and tells the Empress that the time for secrecy is over. He shows her the virus, and Lol is the only living example of its efficacy. With this, she can rule over a perpetually peaceful, entirely human empire. Coldly, the Empress tells him he's as much a fool as he ever was. She orders the virus utterly destroyed, explaining that the Empire relies on an underclass of aliens. If everyone becomes human, the Empire will no longer function. The governor is to be taken prisoner and tried for crimes against humanity. Lal, she orders killed, but is interrupted by the doctor who's just arrived on ship. While Fitz secretly races to sabotage the spaceship's engines, the doctor tries to interrupt the Empress. He claims she can't execute Lal. He's fully human and has the full rights of a human citizen. As the Empress argues, the doctor is able to slip the small vial of the interbreeding virus to Compassion and get her to synthesize more of it. And she makes and releases the virus just as Fitz's sabotage sends the ship spiraling down to the planet's surface. The doctor explains to a horrified Empress what he's done. Now the boundary between alien and human has been blurred forever. Horrified by what he's inadvertently released, Raj Kumar leaps to his death from the ship to the planet below. On the surface, over which the airborne virus is now spreading, the doctor tells the Empress that she's infected too. She can't leave world without spreading the infection. Despite all her talk of human purity, the Empress can't accept this. If she's infected, then everyone else will have to be infected too. Jophael, whose loyalty is to the Empire in principle rather than to her specifically, can't accept this, and kills the Empress, then heads off into space in the still-functioning ship in order to send a signal for an attack fleet to come and wipe out the planet. The Doctor, Fitz, and Compassion fling themselves into the ship after him. Chapter 12 
on the planet's surface, Lal and Isaac meet for the first time in their lives. Each now looks like the other used to. Lal greets Inna as his mother, but it's Isaac whom she embraces as a son. Lal is human, nothing to do with her. She turns her gun on him and orders him to get away from her. When Empress's guards, who, not fully facing the implication of what's happened, are attempting to subdue the escaped inmates from the freak house and impose imperial order on the planet, they find the draconian holding a gun on a human. They shoot her down. Isaac protests, and the troops are about to shoot him too, until Lal orders them to stop, identifying himself as one of the freak house's guards. When the imperial troops run a DNA test on him, they find it's true. It looks as if the Imperial troops are winning the battle, slaughtering many innocent aliens in the process until the Sibyl arrive in force. Linked to Shaul, they observed his meaningless death. The humans were given a choice, marriage or war. They chose the former. The guards are surrounded and told they'd be asked one final time, love or death. It looks as if the guards will choose death in battle when Lal steps forward. He tells the Sibyl that as the governor's adopted son, he's now heir to the throne, and he speaks for humanity. They'll accept a genetic marriage to the Sibyl, and to all the other races in the planet who've been infected with the virus. Anyone who doesn't agree will be imprisoned in the freak house, alien or human alike. The Sibyl are untrusting of the humans. They've seen little evidence that they're capable of accepting a marriage with another race. Then Kat steps up, arm in arm with Sav. She tells the Sibyl that she represents the evidence that it is possible. The Sibyl hesitates, then welcome the first members of the human Sib to their society. Meanwhile, on board ship, the Doctor, Fitz and Compassion confront Jophiel. After a thrilling fight, the Doctor overpowers Jophiel. The Doctor then sends a signal to the Earth Empire and explains that world's a plague planet and must remain quarantined forever. The virus which infects it is too dangerous to risk destroying the planet and possibly spreading the virus throughout space. He then wrecks all communications equipment on ship and uses its advanced warp jump to move into Earth's solar system before disabling the warp drive too. Then, he and Fitz climb inside Compassion, telling Jophiel it's his choice what to do next. Epilogue Compassion remains, standing in ship's bridge and watches as Joe Fael sets a course for the heart of the sun, desperately outracing the Earth's ships which have come to investigate this strange vessel, and which will be infected with the virus if they get too close. She stays just long enough to watch Joe Fael, consumed in flames, then dematerializes, and back on world, Isaac, now himself governor of the Freak House, and Lau, nominal ruler of the planet's human Sib, are attending a ceremony. It's the marriage of two. It's the marriage of two of the Freak House's new inmates, a human and a Silurian. In their arms, they carry their newborn babies, twins, one of each species. When the ceremony is completed, they'll be released from the Freak House, rehabilitated to rejoin normal society. Doctor Who, Freaks, by Rebecca Levine, was read by Tina Peters, Craig Brawley, Stephen Day, Reese Pontiff, Dwayne Bunny, Martin Montague, David Steele, James Hadwin Bennett, 
and Rebecca Chapman. go thank you to everyone for doing that that was uh, great fun to edit that was recorded over three different continents and uh, several months so huge thanks to everyone who puts the time and effort in there to doing that and obviously we're all thanks there during the end credits so yes there we go matt we've had a look over it between us now we've both read the prologue and we've had a look over the background and the synopsis. So how does it strike you? It definitely hit me as being very much of out of the time. It, you can, I could definitely imagine this working in that slot with compassion. Yeah, I think it's... So the Banquo legacy, I think, was in the slot just before the Ancestor Cell. So initially I thought, mm, it's an interesting sort of this would be an interesting lead into the ancestor cell because I think without too many spoilers about the Banquo legacy, there is a plot strand which leads quite nicely into the ancestor cell, which is almost entire. Well, it just doesn't exist in in Freaks. But then, listening to some of those Gallifrey Guardian pieces, then it's pretty clear that the ancestor cell was was not really planned as the follow up to this book um, and was probably written at quite speed. So yeah, I think it does definitely fit into the direction of the books in that sort of early part of the um, of two thousand. And I think Compassion's a really interesting one. So she's obviously going on a sort of transformative journey at this stage, and I think it's quite interesting how Bex writes the character as kind of she's almost preternaturally calm and almost a little bit disconnected from from everything she seems unaffected uncaring a little bit a little bit almost seven of nine-ish i suppose yeah that's a good um, analogy yeah but there's a moment in the prologue which breaks through that and i think the fact that it even breaks through compassion sort of detachment really adds to the impact of that shock moment yeah i think that it's fascinating just reading because obviously we, we haven't we didn't get Bex's permission to share the prologue um, as, as she never replied so, so I didn't want to assume that we could do a reading of it so that's why we've not included it but effectively we've got the Doctor and Fitz inside the TARDIS the Doctor wearing a brown jacket a brown coat which yeah. is a slight variation of course which is quite nice I do like that when we get these variations on his outfit chocolate um, brown as well Maybe that's absolutely right yep got Fitz wanting to make a list and there's the line that made me laugh. No megalomaniacs intent on universal domination fits continued before the doctor could interrupt. No repressive regimes will feel obliged to overthrow, and no unpleasant cockroach-ridden prisons into which we're bound to get thrown. And just think, yeah, that's so fits, isn't it? It's it, it is very fits, and he's very much, um, at least in the sort of written um, prologue, he's very much the point of view character. And I think reading and listening just there to the synopses, I think. He's quite a significant point of view character all the way through the book. He's very funny, he's very sarcastic, It's he's very human, it's very much the fits that we came to know and love. But interestingly as well, I think almost the dynamic that's, that's sketched out in that prologue, you don't have to really stretch your imagination to kind of see how that would work for Benice 
ace as the sort of slightly detached and military and hardened hardened um second companion and then the doctor the doctor somewhere in the middle he's even um at one point he's even accused of being manipulative which didn't strike me as very eighth doctorish it struck, struck me as a slightly more seventh doctorish moment but i could kind of see a nice evolution from bex's wheelhouse of the new adventures into into this um yeah freaks yeah because i think that there's that um element of because by this point the doctor of course has tried to fit the randomizer to compassion and yeah. um there's all the the iffiness that goes with that, which we have previously discussed, and uh, in fact we have we have previously discussed, but nobody's heard it yet because that will be coming in the next season. So yes, that's because we are all wibbly wobbly, timey wimey when we come to discussing the shadows of Avalon. But yeah, there's that element, and I mean it starts off typically the Tardis or the Tardis compassion materializing on this world, and they're being observed as they depart, and of course the the Tardis team gets split up as. Fitz is uh, slightly startled by what's seen around him, and um, you know, it is, even the Doctor's rich chocolate frock coat looks sober by comparison with Fitz wearing a green and white rugby shirt, which I you know, I'd never thought of Fitz as wearing. I always imagined Fitz has been dressed like Jarvis Cocker or obviously the Tenth Doctor, that kind of look, yeah. that sort of shabby chic kind of look. I'd never thought of him as yeah. being a rugby shirt kind of person, but it's an interesting right. setup. It is, and I think um, I think the way that she writes the Doctor's quite interesting, both in the prologue and then in the sort of longer synopsis. Because although I've sort of said he's accused of being manipulative at one point, I think in the in the opening scenes of the prologue when he's having the conversation about with Fitz about how they should decide whether they stay on a planet they've arrived on or not, he's quite he's quite sardonic and says things like etc etc. He's a little bit. And he's quite hard to read for Fitz as well, I think. It, it is quite a... It, it captures quite nicely McGann's performance in the TV movie, which I think some some authors jump on the excitable bit when he's running around testing his shoes out. But I think there's just as much, if not more, um, stuff of him being slightly sarcastic with Grace or a little bit sort of um, offhand around past me this sonic screwdriver and the laser hammer or whatever when when he's in the TARDIS and he's got a very sort of gently teasing nature to him as well um, which I thought was really McGann and a little bit different than some of the way that the Eighth Doctor's written in the Eighth Doctor Adventures where sometimes he comes across as very guileless and innocent and here I think he comes across much more like the performance that we're really used to McGann giving now in, in Big Finish and in things like The Night of the Doctor where he's not just puppyish and wide-eyed and, and these shoes fit perfectly. He's very sort of John Lennon-ish and sardonic and yeah. passing wry comment on the things around him. Yeah, he's definitely a more grown-up version. I think that's... He's not... Um, of course, yes, the, the normal Eighth Doctor... Sort of moments you can sure be popping up with uh, fits, 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 or yeah. something like that. I'm sure would have appeared in the the rest of it at some point. But he's definitely he's very recognisably the Eighth Doctor, but yeah. just not quite the elements of him you would expect. The Eighth Doctor's a hybrid as well, and there's a bit in I think in the prologue or 
I think it must be in the prologue where Fitz says something like, didn't your mother tell you never to lie or something like that? And the doctor's like, ah, <laughs> which I thought was a neat little in-joke around the half-human on my mother's yep. side. Kind of yep. Thing. But, yeah. Um, interesting. And then we go into the the overall story, you know, sort of like the whole background stuff that we just heard earlier. It's quite an interesting world-building exercise with the Sib and the Owl. And um, I don't know, there's something... Something quite, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of disconcerting about it all. It's not mm. a it's not a comfortable world that they're arriving on. I think maybe it's, I don't know if it's because of the way that the world has gone since then, particularly with um, with culture clashes and, um, and things like that that we've had in recent years. And even now with uh, a certain political party and their mad obsession with stopping the boats and people coming in, there was something about it that made it feel quite uncomfortable. I think that's probably the best word for it. Did that yeah. did that come across to you as well? It did. I think it's um, it's sort of satirical, but it's very new adventures ish. Um, I think there's moments of horror in the prologue and through the background, which you certainly would never even touch with a barge pole in Doctor Who on TV, um, certainly not since 2005. And there's elements that are really quite dark and disturbing. The whole piece, the whole background piece reminded me of sort of 1930s horror films. So I was thinking, well, there's like an island of Dr. Moreau kind of, vibe with um with the prison um and the experiments going on there and the kind of hybridization there's lots of stuff around serial killers um obviously the title itself calls back to the 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 infamous todd browning film so so it's definitely i think really riffing on on horror vibes um and i think it deliberately sets out to be quite horrific i agree i think there's the fact there's the children or teenagers who are being experimented upon and things like that, which makes it definitely that sort of island of Dr. Moreau, as you say, there's the elements of it, it just it isn't comfortable reading, and I do like that the fact that it made me feel uneasy because yeah. I don't think that obviously some books you can have good ones, but I think there's ones that should make you think and just that, as you say, it's definitely satirical but just having that ooh, not particularly enjoying that element of it and I think that's something that is a good yeah. thing when we've got that we, there's a killer in the loose we don't know who it is but also that we've got the the cultural clashes on world which is a, an interesting name for a planet yes make me think of the New Order song yeah, it's very um, it, it reminded me of things like the world sphere and things like that in the new adventures yes um, just, yeah. just the idea that any race will call its home planet something like the Earth or the world or you know, home or things like that. Yeah, but I think also the fact that you've got the freak house, now that's an element we've you know, touched upon previously. It does conjure up those sort of Victorian imagery that we've discussed in the past when we were talking about the, the new story at the end of Warrior's Gate and yeah. also in Big Finish through other lives and it's yeah. there's, again it conjured up images of that I mean it's not I just I just had that sort of Victorian kind of 
sanatorium imagery in my head mm. when I was reading over this. Is that pretty much what you came up with as well? Definitely can see that. And I think that when I heard Freak House, that, that really prompted the Dr. Moreau kind of comparison in my mind. I, I really oddly also thought there was a bit of a web planet vibe. And I'll tell you why, because I think it's the Sha'al, uh, the kind of big winged yeah. beings that live above the surface. And then there's the sort of stunted, wingless, flightless, um, I think they're called the Sibs that yeah. live under the surface, which really reminded me of the Monoptera and the Optera. And I thought there was a kind of a kind of web planety vibe around different strands of the same kind of species, which was interesting because it's not necessarily the first story that you'd that would spring to mind when you're doing a dark horror about <laughs> about um, human experimentation. Yeah, I, I actually that's that's a good a good comparison. I, I hadn't thought of it in that sense, but yes, absolutely is. Um, and the fact we've got some family politics going on as well at the back of it. The fact we've got the empress there, and uh, yes, with her um, yeah. naughty offspring, shall we say? Yes. Uh, and again, that struck me as very new adventures because obviously the Earth Empire and the Empress were mostly in a noises off kind of presence in the new adventures but there are a couple where they really came into into sharp focus like so Sin, for example where it's really really focused on on the earth empire the thing that i think i was sort of thrown by was the fact we've got uh draconians being there with one child being born as a draconian turning into a human mm. and then a human being born and transforming into draconian so there's I think there's something unusual about the fact that we've got these you know, monsters from the past popping up, which was not what I expected. Definitely, no. definitely a real surprise. But inevitably, because again, New Adventures vibe, there's a nice warrior in it. But of yeah, all, all of the Draconians and, and um, others popping up w was unusual. And yeah I, I i understand though because i think it's going for that sort of almost sort of just precursor peladon style vibe where you've got this galaxy of fairly fairly familiar to the audience species because you want to suggest like the earth empire is bumping up against all of these different beings within its borders i think you know, the whole tone of it, it definitely feels it definitely feels like an EDA with a touch of the new adventures in there, sort of like an yeah. evolved new adventure. It's, it's like a hybrid. Yeah, that's that's a, that, of course it is. Oh, very good. And it's an interesting mix because I think you're know, reading the the synopsis fits, I think it does seem to get a fair bit to do, which is great. Yeah. And even Compassion, who's somebody who was we never really particularly got to know has a has a few things of interest to do here particularly at the end in the epilogue where she's um watching Jophiel be consumed in the flames before dematerializing and think yeah. that's quite a an interesting thing for her to do just to to watch and observe death without becoming in any way involved i think um you're right it's it gives each of the three main characters a good slice of the action and it does it in a very EDA-ish 
way so where i think it's really different from a new adventures the doctor in the new adventures would be off screen for in inverted commas for big chunks coming up with some master plan that would all come together with a bit of improvisation at the end whereas here the eighth doctor's in it all the way through putting together a gang to go and to go and rescue fitz who's infiltrated the freak house and that's just not not really something the seventh doctor would would normally get his hands dirty with in in the new adventure so that felt really eighth doctor and i thought compassion got gets the sort of big almost murder mystery investigation element of the plot which i also thought was was quite interesting because the banquo legacy is very sort of murder mystery and i wondered whether there was something whether there was something that inspired not directly but whether whether steve or justin said well we had a sort of horror themed murder mystery kind of vibe going on with freaks so whatever replaces it we kind of like it to be horror overtones bit murder mystery ish um don't care how what you do really within those parameters but there there does feel like it does feel like there's a little bit of similarity with the, the kind of really advanced assassin and that kind of murder mystery element strand to it yeah, I do like the bit where the Doctor puts his gang together in, I think it's chapter five, and we get to to meet the members of the gang. I think that that was quite fun. You can imagine that would have been an entertaining chapter. That would have been quite a light-hearted one as the, the get-together and we get to get work out the dynamics as they all get on or not. It's almost it's a lot of, sort of Stephen Moffatty stories where he, he puts together a gang of Silurians and Sontarans and things like that to go and do some sort of heist or yeah. he puts a, a crew together to do the time heist or whatever so <laughs> quite often it, it's a an element that feels quite prescient of stuff that happens in the new series whereas it never really happened in the old series. Yeah and it never really happened in the books because this one wasn't published but we right. nearly got there but <laughs> yes yeah, I mean, for me overall, I think it, I think it'd have been a pretty, a pretty decent read if it had been completed. I think it's there's enough there to make you think. Yep, makes you think, and I think there'd be quite a lot of fun in it because Bex is quite a humorous writer. Yeah. And for me, it's a shame we lost out on what could have been a bit of a gem before the big bang that we get with the ancestor cell. Yeah, no, I agree. I think her track record as a writer is really really strong um you read her sort of i mean i know she edited the new adventures but then you read some of the books that she wrote for the Benice new adventures that came afterwards that they're really good um i think it would have been a, a good book the prologue is um shocking but in a deliberate way and is a great opening hook for the story i think the background has a lot going on in it and i think um, a lot of promise and yeah I agree I think I would have liked to have read this although I do like the Banquo legacy as well so I don't feel like we got something rubbish in, in replacement so I think that's the one that one nugget of um, good cheer from it all yeah and I've got to say big thanks to Will Brooks for mocking up the, the book cover using that shot uh, that they always seem to use in the EDAs of the TARDIS the, the title sequence shot from Tom's era and uh yeah, big thanks to Will for putting that together for us and making it look real. It was fab. Fantastic. Well, 
yeah i very much enjoyed that and i hope you enjoyed today's pieces of eighth if you've enjoyed it or any episode that we've done please do leave us a review on itunes or any podcast provider um, as it means more people can find our episodes and enjoy them we hope so and uh, yeah we had a review last week we haven't had one this week so come on people get your collective fingers out and get typing that would be rather kind if you did and you can follow the podcast on twitter at pieces of eighth we have our facebook group too so feel free to send us a request to join it and find out what we've got coming up as well as some general chit chat and the chit chat is good so that's us another season over matt a huge thanks to you for helping us out as co-host over the past few weeks and also to Dave Steele and our pal Tina Peters, the Queen of Belgium, for providing some maternity cover for Becca. It's been good fun, as always. Always. Thank you, Kenny. And thank you, Matt. Thank you. So, yeah, well, we'll be back very soon when we're going to have a look at some more EDA novels, ones that were actually published. Uh, so until then, I've been Kenny Smith. And I was Matt Michael. Bye. Bye. Should we go to the pub now? Definitely, yeah. If we're going to go to the pub, are we going to go to the dandy and clown, the fancy pants and scarecrow, the emotional cyberman, or just the white rabbit on the West Bank? Amazing. I want a pint now if we want to crawl. Okay, let's do a pub crawl. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Penny, are you back? No, you're not here. Well, I'm all ready to go, so I might as well grab a book and pull up a chair before we start the next season. There's always so many books in a TARDIS library. And, Penny, you've done no cleaning since I was last here. What is wrong with you? Uh, what's this one called? Uh, Doctor Who and the Taint by Michael Collier. Might as well give that a go, I guess. Hang on, Mike Collier again? What? What? What?